0: And it not didn't have to be a goal in a place I was getting to or you know, producing something like producing new writing or doing a fastest time. It could just be here I am spending time in nature and soaking up everything that it is giving off, which is a lot of energy and life and love and light.
1: Do you ever feel like a hamster on the treadmill of life? Welcome to She Walks the Walk, a movement I started to help women lead more inspired, more authentic lives. I'm Sam Plavins. Thanks for joining us. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of She Walks the Walk. How is your lockdown going? Or maybe you aren't in lockdown. We are, (laughs) and it's also known as a stay-at-home order. Seems that we're in the middle of this strange purgatory right now. It's like we can see glimpses of getting to the other side of COVID, but that goalpost keeps being moved just a little bit further ahead. It's exhausting, (laughs) but we're getting through it. Fortunately, I've had a wonderful distraction through some chunks of this period, and I'm really excited to bring it to you because it's timely. I'm stoked to share my interview with Angie Abdu on the eve of her new book release, This One Wild Life. Angie is an award-winning Canadian author, a mother of two, and associate professor of creative writing at Athabasca University. And I inhaled her new book. I'm super excited for you because it comes out tomorrow. Described as a mother-daughter wilderness memoir, Angie was disillusioned with the overly competitive organized sports world and concerned about her daughter Katie's growing shyness. So she set a challenge for the two of them to hike a peak a week over the summer of 2019. They would bond in nature and discover the glories of outdoor activities. Sounds totally like my kind of parenting strategy. And what could go wrong? Well, (laughs) among other things, so many things, it turns out that Angie loves hiking, but Katie doesn't. What ensued is an adventure that made me laugh out loud as I saw so much of myself through her story. But what's so opportune is the narrative arc of Angie's book playing out for many families today, thanks to COVID. In a time where we have to keep our circles small, we can't gather indoors or travel outside our own regions, many of us are recreating in our own backyards. I myself try every day to get my girls out for walks in nature, but it's a battle because I'm competing with the thing that's captured their attention the most, the online world. Angie and I chat candidly about the rigors of parenting, from pushing our kids and knowing when to let go, to resisting the temptation to plan out their lives for them, something that I have the t-shirt for (laughs) and am currently trying to overcome. We dive into the often intolerable world of social media including her own painful experience of being on the receiving end of judgment and hate, and how one special cottonwood tree helped her heal through that difficult time. If you're a parent struggling to get your kids off screens, if you're like me and you second-guess some of the decisions you've made as a mom or a dad, if you love exploring nature and the outdoors, Angie's book comes along at just the right time you'll want to dream up your own nature adventures for the family. And it's looking like, honestly, this could be the right summer to do that. I've pared down our conversation and hope you enjoy. Let's listen in. Okay, well, we can just swim our way through it. and But I want to start with asking you, why did you decide to write this particular story?
0: Well, I have to say it, it means a lot to me to hear that it resonated with you and that you could see yourself in it, because I did have doubts as I was writing. I thought who cares about me hiking with my nine-year-old daughter like me going on local hikes with my nine-year-old daughters how how is that a book so I did have self-doubt throughout the whole process and the reason I I started because I had written a book about my son and about our experience in youth sports and hockey and it was kind of a bit of a critique of the excess of youth sports home ice reflections of a reluctant hockey mom it was called and um, when I got to the end my editor said where's your daughter in this book she said it's not really a concern as far as like the book goes but as far as your daughter growing up and being like well thanks mom where am I in your book and so she (laughs) wasn't there because I had been writing about hockey and I was off running all over the place with Ollie for hockey and I wasn't spending that much time with my daughter and um, that summer after that book came out, I was spending more time with my daughter. And I noticed that she had become really shy. And it was such a shock with me. It was a shock to me. It was almost like she was a different person than I thought I knew. I thought, "Why my Katie's not shy. Like, she's Katie Camper super duper. She's never shy. She'll do, she can do anything. But she was really timid. And I started thinking, oh, she needs more time with me. And we were spending this time together. And then we we had a, high, a hike that she really impressed me. She climbed to the top of Mount Fernie. And as we were thinking about what to do to spend time more time together. I said, but what if we have this challenge? And we next summer, when she's nine, I said, we try to hike a peak a week, every week, we hike to the top of one mountain. And I said, would you like it? If I wrote a book like about that, it would be like the book I wrote with Ollie. And she said, Yes, I would like that. And so it was just kind of my way of, like shining light on her and attention to her. And we had a project together. And then just sharing what I learned and sharing my thoughts with other moms Mm -hmm. concerned about their girls confidence or how to get their kids outside. I guess partly as long answer, but partly the way I think my way through anything is writing. So if I'm mm-hmm. thinking my way through it writing, why not share it with other women or men who might be having similar issues they're thinking through?
1: That actually really resonated with me. So for those who haven't yet read the book, it's, it's wrapped up in these beautiful threads of research that you did, which I so appreciated. You know, as a mom- myself, and I'm constantly second guessing myself going, Oh, my God, there's so much screen time. And oh, I'm pushing the kids too much with gymnastics. And to have these snippets of wisdom that you yourself related to, but that I could view in my own way and relate to my own experience was just it was a gift. Like, I I don't think I've ever read a book that's a memoir that's also so informational like this.
0: And that's one of the ways I fought against that feeling of, is this too narcissistic, right? Is this too much about me? I will then would reach out and include expert research too. So my idea is that as a reader, I would like this book because I pick it up and I'm relating to this woman's personal story and her personal challenges, but I'm also getting the benefit of all the reading she's done. She's sharing with me the bits that she's picked up along the way. So I don't have to go read all that research and look for all those sources. I get it in a more conversational way. So I'm glad that worked for you because it's funny, no matter what you do as a writer, somebody won't like it. So you'll get someone who says, oh, I wish she didn't have all the research because the story was good. And that was just distracting. But then you have someone who said, oh, I just like the research. Why is she telling me her personal story? I don't care about her personal story. So as a writer, I just have to make that decision, put it out in the world and then forget about it. And so I'm glad that it worked for you as a reader.
1: Oh, it worked for me. Like I was taking notes furiously. I was screenshotting, taking notes. And actually, that's a really good segue to something that I'm assuming is not off limits for you. But it was one of the themes I picked up in the book. And that was your experience of having to kind of go through this shame spiral of all the online vitriol and hate you dealt with, um, with two of your previous books, the one being Home Ice, and then the one before that, the novel you wrote, you know, and you talk in the book about writing and putting your work out into the world and doing your utmost best to be respectful and honest and, and authentic and still facing all of this wrath of cyberbullying, and even from people who'd never even bothered to read the books. My question for you is, do you anticipate receiving any sort of backlash about this book? Because I can't even imagine how anyone could say anything negative because you wrapped up a story so beautifully with all of these nuggets of wisdom from other people.
0: I hadn't anticipated any kind of uh, backlash, but I've been naive in the past. I didn't really expect it with the other books either. And then uh, my publicist, just as we were getting into passing the book around, she said if She goes, whenever you write about parenting, there's backlash that people think you do things wrong and you hear about it because people have really strong opinions. She says, if any of that comes up, just ignore it. (laughs) it's her advice, which is actually the best advice for any kind of online attack is just ignore it. Otherwise, you're just feeding this um, hostility that grows and grows but so, so someone might object to um, so the riskier activities we took our kids on. Like we have that episode in a canoe, which wasn't very smart. We sometimes get in a couple of situations that could have ended a lot more poorly than they did. So I could see someone attacking about that. I get in a very, very bad situation with my friend, Yavita Bedlowska. We made some bad decisions <laughs> and end up in a really sticky spot in the mountain. I could see people ridiculing that. Someone in town asked me, one of my writing group people said, do you think... Um, People are going to think you set that up just to make the book more exciting. And I <laughs> i mean, I, nothing would surprise me anymore. So if there's any of that kind of hostility, I just let it bounce off. I'm getting better at that.
1: Yeah, well, that's I think it's important. I mean, the culture we're in right now is so judgy and especially with like the online world.
0: I think people forget there's a human. I think people forget there's a human being at the other end of those comments. You know, they just throw. Something reacts to them because of whatever position they're in and whatever context they're bringing to it. That might have nothing to do with the writer or whoever it is they're angry at it, and they tweet out these very quick at the moment angry, angry responses, and they just forget that they're talking to a human being in public. Like, if you have a real Mm -hmm. issue, why not? calm down write the person a letter have a dialogue but just this uh, people love being angry and they love being angry in a real public way on those forums and nobody acts like that in real life like nobody ever just walks up to you and says something absolutely hateful about your about it's your true. work in real life but
1: it's true and the yeah. the online bit is you know I just see it even in my kids lives people ganging up and, they, and they're missing the nuance of of life you know that yeah just things are taken out of context and they're taken literally and judgments are made and I mean it drives me crazy at the best of times so and a tweet
0: a tweet full of hate will get more tweets and more replies and more likes than a you know benign tweet so if someone wants to get attention they're all fired up and they fire off a bunch of really hateful tweets that always gets traffic and so we're encouraging this kind of rapid fire nastiness that I don't see how it's healthy for anybody, let, not even the person doing it, let alone the person on the receiving end.
1: I know I'm quite worried about humanity, to be honest with you, knowing the world that we're in, which is this atmosphere of attention seeking and, and judging. Have you come across the secret sauce for boundaries, especially when it comes to your kids?
0: Oh, I wish. It's a constant. I mean, I don't think, I, I think it has to be constant because we set rules, right? Like you can only have one hour of screen time and they have to put on a timer and they're only allowed to use their devices in certain rooms. But then at the other hand, we just got my son, like he, they always had devices, but only with Wi-Fi, but now he's going up skiing alone or with his friends because he's 14 so we got him a phone with actual service so like one hand we're saying you have to cut back you have to cut back on the other hand it's like you say it's part of life at school they use their phones in class to look stuff up so all the kids have phones so it's just constant I don't think you can just say once well our rule is that you can only use it in this room and you can only use it one hour a day because it's always evolving and it needs vigilance like they'll sneak back on or slide on because oh I just want to look up a recipe or I just want to put on some music or just the next thing and those things that draws your gaze to it it's so addictive and I know how much I battle it um, in my life because I say I'm getting off Facebook I'm getting off Twitter I'm getting off Instagram or I'm only going to check it in the morning do my posts and stay off but you I have one dull moment and I'm drawn right to it so it's um I, I mean I think I talk about in my book you we I'd make my rules and I just be have to be constantly vigilant to uphold them so what I do is I pay a lot of attention to how it makes me feel so if I'm really just having a look and seeing what everybody's up to and checking in with my friends i like that's fine right if I'm just posting some work stuff and engaging with readers that's fine but as soon as I notice that shift in my gut like this is making me feel gross I'm uh comparing myself to other people or I'm wondering why so-and-so hasn't liked my recent post or I'm just like stupid stuff right Mm. (laughs) like oh my gosh this is turning me into a 13 year old girl then I'm I'm feeling jealous of people when I have you know none of us has any reason to be jealous so never evokes those feelings in me I'm like off 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 and I put it away so I'm trying to teach my kids that same thing like how you notice you're in a bad mood while you're just on your phone for two hours do you think there's a connection there or or like um do you think it's addictive? Does it feel addictive to you? Does that feel like a good use of your time? Like ask them those questions and make sure they're aware of how how much those devices are and their apps are designed to draw us in and just hope that they gradually learn to make good decisions with that information. I mean, it's a part of their world that they have to learn to navigate. Yeah. Even if I were just to impose rules and say, this is it, you can't have a phone or you can only have it 30 minutes a day. That's not really teaching them how to handle this Um, technology that is so interwoven to every single aspects of our life.
1: No, it's, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. And I've done the gamut of boundaries and time limits and, you know, monitoring apps that they're on to, I surrender and I'll give you space. And I, I mean, I still just haven't figured it out, but it is, it's something that haunts me. And I was really happy that you, you tackled it both from your own perspective of what social media can do to you, especially when you're in the middle of a firestorm and in your desire to protect your kids and, and nurture a love of the outdoors.
0: You know what else I'll do to, with my children, as I'll point out, um, if I see a group of teenagers sitting together and none of them is talking to each other, they're all looking at their phones. I'll say, how does that look to you? And they'll mm-hmm. say, that looks silly. Like they're all together. Why don't they talk to each other? They look ridiculous. they I'll say, look at what the phone does to your posture. And then they'll look and someone's all hunched over their phone. It doesn't, you know, it's such an inward looking. So I'm just hoping the more they can observe for themselves, some of the negative effects will encourage them to make better decisions.
1: Yeah. It's a I scary mean,
0: world to be raising kids, isn't it? That's just one of the things.
1: It is. It is a challenging world for sure. <laughs> So I'm going to segue to I'm actually going to dart over to the end of your book, which was so beautiful and poignant and very relatable for me as I'm navigating the world of slowly letting go of of my girls. And so the scene is you're on this canoeing camping trip and Katie has a broken arm and she had been insisting on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She had been insisting on going water skiing and, and, you know, your protective maternal mechanism kicked in and that was, that was a hard no, but you came to this compromise that yes, she could go back and do some cliff jumping with her dad. Um, on her arm. I'm really hard, hard line. <laughs> no, I just, I so, I so got it. But, but oh. what struck me was the last line of your book, when you said you were kind of watching her bounce away and having this epiphany that, you know, you can see your daughter growing into her own skin and some of the realizations you'd come to throughout the summer of her, maybe maybe she's not that shy girl. She's just Katie Camper, super duper or Mm -hmm. cat as she wanted to refer to herself. And you said, I'll be here when you need me. And I almost started to cry when I read that because I think it's the thing a lot of parents, well, especially mothers struggle with is this idea of Wanting to be needed, but knowing that we need to let go. So, my question for you is: Where are you in that process with your with your kids who are now twelve and fourteen?
0: I'm. Our uh, mothers are so emotional. Hey, I just got teared oh. up when you're reading the line back to me, and I think I cried every time I read that on edits. And one not ought not to cry at their own book, but when you're writing about your children, it's so close to the heart. So totally. not that that process of trying to give them everything they need and hold them up and let them be themselves, but let them break away from you, but make sure they know you're there when they need, when they need you. It's just a lot, It's a lot to ask of us moms with our big hearts. So that was, that was a passage, that last passage that wrote itself. And it's a, it was a realization that I arrived at through writing the book and through spending that summer. And so I'm glad that I'm glad that it resonated for you. Where am I at? At a totally different stage than I was in, at the book. My kids are Katie just turned Katie Catherine Kate. She changes her name every day. She's still trying to figure out who she is. Is that signaled by her name? Right? She'll be like, oh, yeah. call me Kate. call me Catherine. So, but she um, just turned twelve. And she has her own style of clothes and her own style of hair. And she's asking me if she can get another piercing in her ear. Like she's always expressing herself. She might be a girl of few words, but she really expresses herself creatively in other ways. And I've just started swim coaching, which is such a surprise, but because of COVID, there was a crisis with our swim club and we were short of coach. So I'm stepped in and so I'm coaching them both in swimming. So I'm spending more time with them than I ever have because they have two hours of practice every day. And it's this really nice balance where I'm there, but I'm not really mom. I'm coach Andy. And so mm-hmm. I have this relationship with them where they know I'm there and I'm doing everything I can to help them, but they're interacting with me in a independent Independent way like almost like the other kids are so I'm really grateful for that that I get to see them be close to them but also watch them grow up mm. and they really I mean oh gosh they transform so fast I think in this sort of 12 to 15 well you know beyond that but this 12 to 15 I feel like they're transforming in front of my eyes and they're so tired of me saying oh my gosh you're so big I <laughs> don't want to hear how big <laughs> every day they look bigger And I think what I learned writing the book was to not be so, like, I'm just very, um, I like to have a plan and execute it and hard worker and all this. So I tried to do that with my hikes to Katie. Like, we're going to do this. We're going to make this goal. We're going to, instead of just being like, let's hang out and see what happens. Let's hang out and figure out who you are and who I am and what we like to do together. Instead, I was going to impose this plan on it. And through the course of my book, I learned to be a little less intense and to just sort of see what rises up and work with that you know give them space to be themselves and I, that turned out to be a really valuable skill as they turn into teenagers because they are they're growing into interests that I would have never dreamed of if I were to make a plan and execute it and force it so if I sort of stand back and find out what interests them and where they're drawn and then do what I can to facilitate that I was doing a speaking her with Carl Subban um, P.K. Suban's dad uh, with the hockey book and He said, you, what do you do? Clear the way, you pave the way, and then you get out of the way as a parent. (laughs) So you clear the way, pave the way, get out of the way. And so I try to remind myself that I do sometimes have to get out of the way for my kids. (laughs) It's a hard one. I
1: love that. I love that. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears. And I want you to tell me about your out-of-body experience with the Cottonwood and how it helped pull you out of the pain of what you were going through with um, all of the online bullying. Do you find that super strange that passage? I did, did they, not
0: oh, <laughs> No, <laughs> I
1: no in fact the reason I want to tease it out of you and I mean readers will draw their own conclusions but you know you you come to this place where you confess that sometimes you enjoy the attention and the space of trees more than people. And, and
0: trees are nice.
1: They are. And it's something I can relate to. And I'm not even ashamed to admit it anymore. But there's something magical that happens when you're with a living thing that doesn't ask for anything. And I just I found it so spiritual and beautiful. So what exactly happened?
0: So I was really at a point of despair. I had been, I felt like I'd been entirely outcast from my professional communities. I felt like a lot of people who I thought were my friends had decided they didn't like me without a single conversation and uh, with me. And I was, I just felt like I was this villain and so hated. And it's just completely at odds with how I felt about myself and in my communities other times and totally out of my control. And I was worried about losing my job losing my livelihood would anybody publish me like how could it how could this have spiraled out of control and so I when I talk about the time I will often say but I wasn't suicidal and my husband will say weren't you so he had it was bad it was bad mm-hmm. um, and I was just laying in bed one morning and our window looks out on some old growth cottonwood trees and I had this feeling of That this tree was going to take care of me and I just felt like it was radiating love and acceptance like it was saying to me the tree was saying I love you I you're okay you're going to be okay and I felt so lifted and taken care of and it was a full body buzz kind of experience so when I would try to explain it to people I'd play it down and I'd say well it must be the body produces these hormones to make you survive a traumatic experience like that or You know, I was projecting, I know I need to love myself and I was projecting that love and acceptance and self-care onto the tree or I tried to explain it away. And I had one friend who said, he said to me, I was raised in the church. You don't have, it sounds like you're trying awfully hard to explain what was a spiritual experience. So after that, I would sleep with my blinds down so that when I woke up, I could look at the tree and it would give me this, like, everything's going to be okay
1: (laughs) feeling. And I would
0: go on with my day.
1: I just think it's such a poignant, beautiful symbol. I mean, it's one tree. Mm -hmm. But you and Katie and I mean, ultimately, your whole family embarked on this journey where you you went into the mountains and you did exploring and hiking and crazy adventures where you were surrounded by, you know, tons of trees. And Mm -hmm. I'm just really curious about how you would describe the benefits of of being outside and being in the woods, both for yourself, you know, when you're out there on your own kind of woman versus nature and also when you're with your kids.
0: Oh, it's so restorative and it's so, I mean, there's so, there feel like there's lots of reasons to despair right now. You know, the environment's a mess. We're told there's going to be an economic collapse. There's uh disease, better. but you know, there's lots of reasons to despair, but when you're out and, and looking at the beautiful forest and the beautiful mountains and you think how lucky are we to live in this world? Look how beautiful it is. It's beautiful. And it makes, so it makes, um, it lifts us up and it gives us that sense of awe and that sense of gratitude to have a life in this beautiful planet. But hopefully it also inspires us to do what we can to protect it and take care of the environment and make smart decisions. So that's one thing. Also though, I've, I've, I found my my way of interacting with nature changed when I was writing this book because I had always, I'm always um, really driven. So I would go out for a run, but I'd be on the trail and kind of hunker down or running or I'd go out for a run because it was how I sought my way through my writing process. So I'd be so lost in my thoughts, I wouldn't even really be looking around. But after I had that experience with the tree, and I started feeling like nature was really where I was going to find the medicine to survive this unpleasant social situation I'd found myself in, I started to think really consciously about opening up my chest and lifting my head and looking at the trees and, and it not didn't have to be a goal in a place I was getting to or, you know, producing something like producing new writing or doing a fastest time, it could just be here I am spending time in nature and soaking up everything that it's giving off, which is a lot of energy and life and love and light.
1: Mm.
0: It's great to feel that sense of awe.
1: Yeah. And And you, I think you used the word, well, you, you said, you know, you came to the conclusion that you didn't have to approach everything in your life athletically because Mm -hmm. you, you are an athlete you know, and you come from this competitive sport background. And so the inclination to push ourselves and to drive, you had this epiphany that you could just be, you could just surrender to what's there and what's there for you.
0: Exactly. And that's, um, that's a really good epiphany to arrive at as I head into my fifties. You know, I spent so much of my life striving to try to be something, and just to say, well, no, I am what I was. One, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a university professor. I wanted to be all these things, and I can just say, no, I am those things. I don't have to keep striving to be them. I can just, I am them, and that might not change what I do day to day, but it changes my, um, the way I think about it and the way. Like, you know, I'm not always, it's not always about striving and stretching and pushing and it's just a more relaxed. And so I think I like that idea of relaxing into my life in my fifties.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm right on your heels. and I'm just so tired of the grinding and the hustling and the trying to be productive and this, you know, this, this culture that we're in where we have to be productive, even with our own kids. And and that was another thing that struck me about your your book and made me reflect on how I've interacted with my own children who have been involved in, um, competitive sports, namely gymnastics. And, you know, why I took so much joy from that and and my own pushing my own desire to see them achieve. Is that the mirror of my own desire to achieve? And, and then coming to this place where, um, when I look back on raising my own girls who are now they've since left the world of competitive sports, partially because of COVID and just that natural evolution of them getting older. But I see it all around us, you know, this environment where parents are raising children to be in a sport for recreational purposes is almost frowned upon. It's all competitive, competitive, competitive. And I just loved that you teased this idea of, you know, we, we can let our children follow their passions and we should reflect on, are we going to lead them to burnout? Um, Are we pushing them too much? Does that make any sense to you?
0: Absolutely. And it's something I have to remind myself every day. I mean, I've always been so goal oriented and so driven and I assume my kids would have the same satisfaction from being as driven and as goal oriented, but they might not. And I need to always remind myself, chill out <laughs> mm. what I need to have and tattooed on my hand just chill out but and sometimes what arises from once I do stand back and just see well what are they going to be into are things I would have never expected like my daughter loves to bake and she makes these amazing four-layered fancy decorated cakes and she was 11 and she'll be cooking and she'll run out of ingredients and she'll get her little purse and she'll walk down to the store and buy what she's missing and come home and continue baking like completely independent and not something I would have thought to push her towards and they're beautiful and delicious and so she's a baker I wouldn't have thought of that so they can be all kinds of things they don't have to be you know hockey players or whatever and 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 my son he still does swimming competitive swimming Right now, he will say if you ask him that he does it for cross-training because he likes other sports. And whether he says that because he thinks swimming is not cool or because he doesn't like it that much or because he doesn't want to feel pressure to compete, it doesn't really matter. Like if he wants to go and think of it as cross-training and maybe later he'll change his mind, maybe he won't. But just that's a perfectly admirable reason to swim as cross-training and fitness. Absolutely take some deep breaths and let them figure it out. It's hard though, because when they're little, we take care of their everything. So it's hard to watch them. They don't to, you know know how much and when to back off.
1: I get it. I get it. Even, you know, with my, one of my greatest hopes with my children, because I have a background in music was that they would want to be musical. No, neither of them are really interested in that. And then the obvious other one was that they would fall in love with the outdoors and, For me to get my kids to come on a hike with me is either bribing or, you know, the opportunity for some really cool selfies with my eldest. And neither of those experiences usually end well. So it's disappointing for me to not have this vision in my head that I had imagined of being this happy hiking family when it's just not their jam. And I I think it was cool in your book that you discovered um, it was that one scene when you and Katie were on that really hot day, you were tackling that, that big mountain peak and she just stopped and she said, no, I'm not going on anymore. And you were, you were at a point where you had to make a decision. Did you push her to, to get the reward for all that hard work, which was maybe 20 minutes up ahead still or to allow her the space to say, okay, well, we can kind of surrender and go back. And you ended up encouraging her to go on. And it turned out to be this wonderful moment where, you know, she felt so, so much pride. But that's, that's a real thing, I think, for, for parents, this idea of, do we push when we know that there's a reward? And do we push when we know that there's talent? Or do we back off when we know that there's really no interest?
0: And you know, that's of I like, I think, about memoir as a writer and a reader is that the rules of life don't fit on a fridge magnet. You know, we're such a meme-saturated culture where we want to have a nice, tidy little, you know, sports art, child-driven, you know, and that's it. We know in a sentence. Don't push your kids. Well, sometimes you have to push your kids. Sometimes if you yeah. didn't push them, they would spend their whole life on the Xbox, you know. So it's the, I'd hope by in memoir, you're really immersed in one person's life. And then from that, you can draw out universal conclusions that are more complex than something that would fit on a fridge magnet. <laughs> so in that case, I weighed all the odds. We had a rest. We had a good talk. And it just seemed I knew the adrenaline part of the hike, like the scary part was coming, and I knew that would bring her alive. I wouldn't have forced her to go at that point if she absolutely dug in her heels, but I thought this would be a really disappointing to turn around at this point to have done all this work oh, and
1: yeah.
0: All so but you know as a parent you're you're or at least I find um, often we project this confidence like we're doing the right thing and we know what's right. We don't know what's right. We might not know what's (laughs) right until two years after we look back and think that was a good decision or wow, that was a really bad decision. So I guess memoir, you get it all the story down and it gives you space to reflect and think it out, tease out the details.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was holding up a mirror a lot to my own experience and, um, you also mentioned in there, I don't know whether it was your own quote or somebody else's that, you know, we can do all all that we want to, but eventually, even if we have the best of intentions, we'll probably fuck up our children. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I, I struggle with that because I know it's true. You know, we always want to do better than our parents did for us and bless them. They did the best that they could and we turned out okay. But. Still, it's just it's a giant crapshoot when you're a parent. You just kind of do your best and try things on and see what fits.
0: Yeah, I like being really open with our kids, and we talk to them about everything. And so sometimes I'll say that was a poor decision I made. I I told you to do this thing, and I told you to do it that way, and I forced you. And in fact, that was a really poor decision, and I should have listened to you. And I just mm-hmm. like we're all human, and so just to be very open about that. And as they get older, I find they um, appreciate and respond well to that. I was thinking about you saying that your kids don't really love the nature uh, outdoor ex- adventures so much. And I have a lot of friends who, while I was talking to them about this book, they said that their parents were really into canoeing and hiking and camping, and they hated it as kids. But when they look back, it's their best memories, and now they do it all the time as adults. So maybe whatever oh. we whatever we push as a, as as parents is going to be a you know, they go through that re- rebellious phase, maybe they're, and it's, I guess it's effortful. It's not always comfortable hiking and canoeing and camping.
1: Yeah, no. And I, and I would say that if, if my kids had to point to some of their fondest memories and their greatest achievements, it's always been something, a pursuit that was outdoors, where they, they pushed themselves and Pushing themselves in an environment that they're not crazy about, but where they do see that there's a reward for their efforts is, is not something that I regret, but would I love if my daughters came with me as I was exploring Sleeping Giant Provincial Park? Yes, I would love it, but they're like, "Mm, no, but my hope is that, you know, they'll, they'll find some solace in the, in the outdoors and nature too, when they need to get away from just the madness of of real life. Mm-hmm. One thing that I picked up and I loved in the book was your admission of playing the role of damsel in distress or dumb blonde when it <laughs> when it comes to the outdoors and I, I want to tell you I have that t-shirt, but yet you still pushed your own boundaries of comfort by putting yourself in challenging hiking situations where you could lose yourself in nature and not have to put on any avatar for anyone and I loved that. So towards the end of your epic summer, you and your big city friend, uh, how do you say her name, Joita?
0: Yavita. Yavita Yeah, Yevita. Drunk Drunk Mom, Yavita Butloska.
1: Okay. So you found yourselves in a dangerous situation when you went out for a hike that you promised would not be boring. I was I, not boring, was it? That <laughs> I thought was hilarious. And you wound up having to be rescued off that mountain when there was a chopper. And, and then you even... Res- received online criticism for that which like at this point I'm yelling at the book I'm I'm pissed off but then you got a phone call from one of the search and rescue guys and and I wonder if you can just share with us what that phone call meant to you you know what was the phone call about and and why did it mean so much
0: yeah so we got in a really bad situation on that mountain and I think it's a combination of personalities and being new friends around each other, me having had a big, big summer of hiking and feeling overly confident, just a whole bunch of things mixed together to make a couple bad decisions, like two bad decisions, and suddenly we were somewhere we shouldn't be. And we could have died. So I laugh now that we didn't die at how absurd the whole situation was, but it was very bad. And so we did get rescued, long line helicopter off the side of the mountain. It was not boring at all, as promised. <laughs> and um, no. And then almost right away, because search and rescue puts out their press release, and almost right away, people were like, "Whoa, what were they doing there? They shouldn't have been there in the first place." Because the, the search and rescue report said that we made a good decision in calling for help, mm. and they were like, "Well, good decision would have been not to be there in the first place." And I hope they're paying for that helicopter ride and that kind of online abuse right away, right away. And I did what I said I did do to you. Uh, I said to you is that when I start feeling that sick in my stomach, feeling from social media, I just put my phone away. So I, I was almost like I felt worse about people saying bad things about us online than I felt what, like when we we're actually stuck on the side of a mountain, hoping we didn't fall to our death. So afterwards, a couple of days later, the, a guy from search and rescue called me and he said, I just wanted to let you know that I saw that you're receiving some harassment online and that you made a really smart decision. Too often people wait until they're hurt or until it's dark and, or they're dehydrated and then it's really odd. Uh, tricky rescue for us or they have to spend the night and they said you called exactly at the right time and you needed help and it was the right decision and he said and people people don't criticize someone for calling the fire department when their house is on fire they don't criticize someone for calling the police when they're being robbed I don't know why people criticize someone for calling search and rescue that's what we're there for so yeah. that was, that meant so much to me, just that he took the time out of his day to say, you're not an idiot. <laughs> you don't deserve to be harassed online. It really was important that that he cared enough to do
1: that. I mean, and the, the message that he gave you, I mean, I never would have even thought of that, but you know, there's myself, I don't want to bother anyone. I don't want to put anyone out. I don't want to be perceived as weak, which is something else I related to you about the book, you know, you, you have a hard time admitting when you need help. And I love that you called your husband and <laughs> and got his voicemail. And I just killed myself laughing at that whole exchange. True. But at the end of the day, it, it's true. People, you know, people do go out West, they backcountry ski, they go into the mountains, um, you know, maybe overly confident, and they can lose their way. And, whether or not they have the wherewithal to make a phone call or or not, the message should be that help is there. And I think that that was a critical piece that I got is that, yeah, people need to be empowered to ask for help, especially when they're in a dangerous situation.
0: And I was very reluctant to call for help because I thought, I kept thinking, and I was wrong, I kept thinking, we must be close to the trail, like, there must be an easy way out, and I didn't want to be embarrassed. Like, I know mm. the people in town, I knew word would get out that I had done something stupid and dragged someone into trouble, and I was very afraid of being embarrassed. So I didn't want to call for help, and um, I'm glad that Yavita did. And she did, When when she did, I was trying to get into a safe spot and was holding onto roots with my feet, had no purchase on the mountain and a very steep fall to my death when she called 911. I mean, I didn't fall to my death clearly, but if I would have fallen there, it would have been terrible. And I, I was scared at that point, And I managed to lower myself to a flat spot. But then once I got to the flat spot, there was nowhere else to go.
1: Yeah. And flat. would you say that that experience that that you had with Yavita, did it tie you two together? Like do you have this oh my gosh, special yeah. bond. Yeah. <laughs> The near-death experience on the mountain.
0: Oh, we'll be friends forever. In fact, yesterday I noticed that my book was listed as um, a hot new release on Amazon, but in the hiking and guiding category. So I made some comments about, um, because I'm such an excellent hiking guide, it would only make sense that this is where you would find this book. (laughs) But she was making the exact same comment at the exact same time on her page about me, my great hiking guide. So we were laughing. We're like, essentially, we're the same person at
1: this point. (laughs) I love that. I love that.
0: I was going to say, whenever you you go through something, no, I shouldn't say whenever, but going through with something that's suffering and traumatic and scary can really bring two people together. I mean, I guess it could have gone the other way. She could have hated me and thought, how did you get me into this and been really scared and been mad at me. So I'm glad that didn't happen.
1: Yeah. And I was curious when I got to that part, because it was a surprise to me you know you, the book was kind of focused on your experiences with Katie and your relationship with with her and being outside and even your relationship with your husband which i also really appreciated your candor there i was pretty surprised that this kind of cropped up like this kind of high drama peak of the story and what i'm wondering is were you already writing the book and this happened
0: yeah, I was writing the book mostly while while I while it was happening. So I proposed okay. the idea that we're going to do a peak a week, and that's not the way a book is normally written. So it's a good question. Normally, I would have the experience and then decide that's worth writing about, and I would write it later. But I I had the idea we're going to hike all summer, and I'm going to write about it. And I was writing as it happened. So yeah, we're jo- Yavita and I were joking about the that rescue chapter as we were living it. You know, how's this going to look in the book? Kind of just to lighten our, find something to laugh about because we were so scared. And so in a way it's off with the rest of the book because the rest of the book is so family focused. But I think for me, the message that I take away, like I'll take boring any day. Boring is nice, boring family hike is good for me. That's a really important place for me to arrive as a 50 something year old mother and wife and to be like, we don't need that excitement. We don't need the drama. We don't need the thrills. Like, I'm pretty happy with a nice, boring walk in the woods with my family.
1: Yeah, that rung true for me, too. I'm a mountain climber, and I like to live on the edge. But as I've gotten older and maybe a little bit more unselfish in acknowledging, you know, that I have people that need me and rely on me and just, you know, facing your own mortality, nature, as healing as it is, is not something that you necessarily want to take for granted or mess with. I think it's really powerful that you had that experience. And now that you know what that feels like, it probably does make you appreciate just the boring, you know, taking your dogs out to the backwoods or whatever.
0: And now I'm not sure when I look at that experience, where could I have stopped it from going wrong? There's definitely a few places, but at the same time, like my friend, my explorer, John Turk, he says uh, uh, when things go wrong in in the backcountry, it's usually a mix of personalities. And that was kind of the case. Yavita was, um, we were kind of new friends. And she, so I wasn't going to speak really harshly with her and say, stop, we're not going any farther. She got ahead of me in a place that we shouldn't have been. And she was, her response to be nervous was to go fast. So I was trying to get her to stop, but I couldn't catch up to her. And by the time that all worked out, we were just in a really bad spot. So I mean, obviously we should have turned around a lot earlier, but how that would have happened, I don't I don't know, given the given the way it played out. So
1: and you said in the book that she still that she maintains that it was like the greatest day of her life or something like that. I'm paraphrasing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I can see why. I mean, it was exciting, right? Something we just about died and then we didn't, and there was a long line. Helicopter rescue. It was exhilarating. We were thrilled, thrilled to be alive, you know, at the end of it. So by the end of the day, she was, yes, that was her best life ever. and She just loves seeing helicopters. (laughs) When she sees helicopters, they make her happy. I I love that. uh, The helicopter pilot was a friend of my husband, a friend of ours. So I see him at uh, social things back when we used to have social things. I would see him and I I have that response to him when he walks into the room. I'm just like, oh, good. Dave's here. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just have this calm flood over me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, one of the questions that left me breathless in the book was you proclaiming how often we compromise in order to align with what we imagine that family, friends, colleagues, employers, and even society wants us to do or think or be. And that we perform ourselves instead of being ourselves. So what's your outlook right now on the performative nature of of the world that we're in?
0: Yeah, social media does not make that any better, does it? We're constantly, mm-hmm. We can't even go on a hike without showing everybody that we, have. we can't even eat something good for dinner. We're show, showing everybody what we had for dinner. So I'm really trying to step away from that aspect. Social media encourages us to narrate our lives constantly. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm always successful. But um, I do find again, and this is getting well solid into middle age that I feel less performative. And I think maybe that's an outcome of that bad time that I had on social media. You know, all those people just hating me so much and vilifying made me, I had to come to a place where I really don't care what other people think about me, except for those closest to me who matter with my husband, my two kids, you know, the, my immediate family, my closest, very close circle of friends who do know me and I don't need to perform for them. And so it, you know, having had such a bad experience with um, my wider community and the online public or whatever, and having to come to a place of not caring what people think about me has done away with some of the performance. Mm. But at the same time, I said again, where I talk about vigilance, you have to decide who you want to be and how you want to live and constantly be vigilant that you don't let those technologies creep into your life overly because of course i'm still online and i'm still you know i still have oh this will be a nice five i my son today at swim club that would make a nice facebook post and impress people so instead of just having fun with my kids and my club i'm already thinking about the post and i have to catch myself with that and be honest with myself and try to keep it in check i think we all do otherwise we'll spend our whole lives narrating them instead of uh, living them
1: do you ever feel pressure to to share things you know, in the spirit of being out in the public and being a writer and having a book coming out, do you feel a pressure to put yeah, something absolutely. out
0: there? Absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I live in a small town. I live a far away from the publishing industry. So the way that I have kept connected to readers and to the publishing community is through an online existence. So I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. And that's how I connect to people. And so, if I'm not posting anything, I'm not connecting. So it's this weird draw. You're always drawn to make sure to, you want to let people know you're still alive and you're still here and you're still doing interesting things, but um, it can be so it can be so helpful, but then it can be so unhealthy. So it's mm-hmm. a constant balancing act. And so I liked I, I quote from Zoe Lee Peterson in my book, who would take her her phone out and do those things when she was on tour out of obligation, but then when she got home, she'd put her Phone back in her sock drawer, and go back to uh, writing. And I don't, I don't really take massive times off of social media. I probably should. And I say, oh, maybe I will after this book. But it's always after something that I'm going to. But I, you know, what I tell myself is that people really don't care. People really don't care about my holiday, and people really don't care about that I raised my 14 year old son, or people really don't care that it's my 12 year old girl's birthday. So I have to really stop and just be. Everybody's busy narrating their own life and posting their pictures about their latest, greatest thing that they had for dinner or thing that they did. So just try to minimize. So and I'll try to keep in mind who I'm posting it for. And I realize now that when I post about my kids, it's for my my for the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and the cousins who weren't, you know, we get to see each other as kids grow up without being in the same city. My old close friends. And so sometimes I'll even put like for the this is mostly for the grandparents or this is for my old yeah. assuming would be interested and that way I don't feel like I'm actually performing myself instead I'm communicating with a certain group of people through the, yeah. those
1: I get that and it, to be honest if it weren't for Facebook um, at least with my second daughter I'm not sure there would be any documentation of her growing up because there was no more printing of pictures and you know yeah. it's just it's the memories from sharing her life growing up on Facebook and I've just hold on to them and I want to get them off Facebook. But it's it's just such a it's such a strange dichotomy right now.
0: I love the Facebook memories, I have to say. Like that I do love that. When my little kids pop up a video of them or something that they said that I wrote down and I I don't remember it. I think I'm gonna remember it. And then it comes up and I'm like, I totally forgot this. And they're so cute. And they're like different people than they are now. It's I'll be watching yeah. this video and I'll think, oh, I miss them even while they're right there in the room. And I still love them the way they are, of course, but they're different people than they were 10 years ago.
1: Well, I haven't read a whole lot of parenting books, to be honest with you. And it's partially because I'm lazy, like just <laughs> keeping it real. But like like I said to you, I really appreciated that you wove in this, this structure with this additional insight from you know, experts, people with other opinions. And it didn't feel preachy. And it didn't feel like it interrupted the flow of the story. It was very natural. So I I, I really appreciated that. I tried to
0: think of it like as if, in a sense, to tell myself an idea of the tone before I started is as, as if I'm writing my best friend who's super interested in my life, but is also interested in the research I've been doing. So it's smart, a very smart best friend. And I'm just, Talking to her—that was the tone I was going for.
1: Yeah, well, I think you nailed it, and you seem to write it very quickly. I mean, this was the summer of 2019,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, I did write it quickly. Didn't
1: I? <laughs> so, I mean, I would say you know, understanding that there's a lot involved in actually getting a book to the release stage, was that partially because of the pandemic? Can you comment on that?
0: No, this is I. I I'm so. um goal-oriented and driven and deadline did I never miss a deadline really and so I had I had this idea in my head that I like books to come out two or three years apart and so home ice reflections of a reluctant hockey mom came out in 2018 so this is coming out early 2021 and I wanted to get it well people who had read home ice might still be interested in what happened next in my family and that part of the narrative so I did write it really fast and I wrote it um I remember having committed to a deadline and thinking, this is crazy. Even for me, this is too short. And I wrote like fast and intense and around the clock and it was stressful. So, but, um, but yeah, I made my deadline. I must make my deadline. And then I promised I would never do that again because it was intense. But it's funny you mentioned the pandemic because this was all written before the pandemic, but I'm thinking that the themes are really um, timely right now. The whole idea of, Hunkering down with your closest inner circle and spending lots of time with your family and choosing to recreate locally and connecting with nature and outdoor fresh air, like all these things that now we have to do, we have to stick with our bubble and we have to holiday locally. And if we want to um, socialize with friends, it has to be outside. So these things that I did um, for other reasons then are suddenly very, very what we're doing right now.
1: It's almost prophetic in a way you know, it's, it's, it's a strange time that we're in right now, but I, I think that there's a romance with being outside and rediscovering our own backyard. And you certainly lit a fire in me with that. Two last questions. Has Katie read the book?
0: She hasn't yet, but she, um, she's funny. So her brother was reading Home Ice and then she's like, well, can I read one of your books? And I said, absolutely. You should read the hiking one when it's out. And she said, oh, well, can I read The Canterbury Trail, which is my rudest, most obnoxious book. And she somehow knows that. So, of course, she would ask, well, no, I'm going to read it. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. <laughs> but no, she will read it. And I will, I, I think, I mean, I'll be happy to share it with her. I, I worry how my kids feel about, you know, as if I'm using their lives or making them characters or something. But on the other hand, we talk about it all, all the time. And they're feel in on the project. And then I just tell myself, like I'm writing with them from such a position of love, like so much love. So how could they possibly object? And I mean, I maybe they will at certain stages of
1: their lives, but you know, it's this it's this idea of what what do you keep for yourself versus what's important to share? because in in my opinion, you know there's a purpose behind everything. And aside from just the enjoyment of you're obviously a writer, you love to re- create, you love to share. But there there was a message in your book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love reading memoirs, so mm. that's what I'm drawn to write, right? I'm typically drawn to write what I like reading. And so I like that feeling of um, honesty and intimacy as if someone's sort of sharing their secrets with me, and then I'm able to figure out, how are we supposed to live? Because this person's telling me how they're figuring out how to live. You know, I think that's always why we go to books, is how to live... I don't want to say better because then it sounds like self-help, but I mean deeper, um, more thoughtfully, more, more deliberately, you know, yeah. with more rigor- yeah, rigorous and not, not analysis. Cause that sounds with, with more wisdom. How do we live with more wisdom? And so yeah. between the pages of a book is where I find that. So mm. when I'm writing, if I'm trying to do that as a writer instead of a reader, and then I share it with other people and hopefully they get the same thing
1: your book comes out on, is it April 17th? April
0: 13th. April 13th.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you're very excited. Tell us, tell us all the deets. Where can we find you? Um, Where's the best place for us to get your book?
0: I am excited. It's very different than any other kind of um, publishing year normally I like to tour because I live remotely so it's a chance to go out and meet readers and get my book into stores and so typically I would do like a 26 city tour I'm not going mm. anywhere right and and um, I had some festivals lined up but they've all been cancelled and they're going online so yeah it's a strange feeling to have a new book and have no plans to travel anywhere but I will be doing a lot of different online events and so on April 13th, there will be an event the Fernie Heritage Library is hosting, and I'm going to be interviewed by Hal Wake, who uh, he used to be the producer of Morning Side with Peter Zosky and the director of the Vancouver Writers' Festival. So that will be and then i the Saskatchewan Festival of Words in July. So I should update my website, and I should put all the events on it. But then I'll, I'm going to do an Active for Life as an association that I write for a lot, and I'm going to do an event with them. So I'll be do, doing different online discussions. And, yeah, my book should be available everywhere and if it's not you should say to the bookstore owner you should get this book and then they will (laughs) it's always very helpful for a writer
1: I salute you I thought it was fabulous and I'm going to be getting my sister to read it my sister-in-law to read it I I think it's it's got many interesting crossovers not just the parenting connection not just the nature and hiking and outdoorsy connection but it's just it's a beautiful relatable story and it's timely So,
0: so nice thank you
1: Thank you so much for giving us your time. I really, really appreciate it. And that's a wrap for my conversation with Angie Abdu. It was like talking to an old friend. Her new book, This One Wild Life, comes out tomorrow, April 13th. You will laugh, you'll probably get misty-eyed if you're a softie like me, and you'll find yourself enlightened. I wanna leave you all with something Angie said that stuck with me. She says, Nature was really where I was going to find the medicine. So I want to encourage you, if you're having a bad day, if you're sick to death of the pandemic, if you've had a fight with your daughter about her saucy attitude, that could happen, find solace in the outdoors. There has never been one occasion where I didn't return exhilarated, refocused, centered, or feeling more alive. Get outside, people. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to join a community of like-minded women, we'd love to have you. Head over to www.shewalksthewalk.com and subscribe. Remember, you don't need to let anyone or anything dictate how you live your life. You can walk your own road to happiness.